Recovery Elevator, episode 157. It validated everything for me and made me feel so much more comfortable with what I'm doing and that I'm not doing this alone, that there are other people that are just like me. And the whole stereotype of who people are in recovery is just out the window for me. That just helped me realize that there's many people out there that are going through the same thing and we're all good people. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, it's been almost 42 months since my last drink. On today's podcast, we've got Kim. She's 36 years old. She's from Chicago. She's been sober since September 5th, 2017. She was told by not one doctor, but two on two separate occasions that if she continued to drink, she would die, but she continued to drink for two more years. It's a fantastic interview. And before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe Ari. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. So when I talk in schools, and I actually did the same exercise in the Dallas retreat that we just had, I asked people, what are the stereotypical words that come to mind when they hear the word alcoholic? And you hear words like low life, bum, homeless. Okay, I'll stop there. You get the point. We don't need to go down that road. Number one, there's no point. But number two, it's completely wrong. So data shows that only three to 5% of alcoholics actually fit that bill. Somebody living under a bridge, drinking out of a brown bag. So what do people with an AUD, alcohol use disorder slash alcoholic, really look like? So this is a big reason why I've broken up with the word alcoholic. You hear that word on this podcast still occasionally, but I try not to use it because it's a sentence ending profound word. It's like, well, my cousin Rick's an alcoholic, period. And when you hear the word alcoholic, just think of the words that come to mind. It's usually of the 3 to 5% of people that are living under the bridge and have no address to receive mail. Their lodging usually has an Amazon Prime sticker on the top or tape. That would mean they live under a box, but that's not the case. So, who are we? Do people with an AUD, like myself, do we struggle to find worthy employment? Because we're probably only equipped with a high school diploma because we're not very smart people. Surely, alcoholics can't be executives in a company. They definitely can't own their own companies. They can't have positions of responsibility. Surely, that can't be the case because all those negative words come to mind when I hear the word alcoholic. So are alcoholics, or people with alcohol use disorders, are we the ones that fill up the bus stops? Are we the ones taking a whole left turn lane on a bike because we don't have a driver's license? Are we the bulk of Tinder or Match.com's undateable database because we can't hold down a relationship? 
Are we baby boomers who are exiting the prime years of our lives who are resorting to alcohol to numb the feelings that, hey, life just didn't work out the way I'd hoped? Well, it turns out these scenarios that I just painted couldn't be further from the truth. So to secure sponsors for the podcast, I needed to get stats on who was listening. And I've also done several survey monkey questionnaires inside the Cafe RE private groups. What I found is awesome. I'd like to say it surprised me, but it didn't. And all my interactions with the people in the private groups, with other people with alcohol use disorders, it all pans out to be true. It fits the results from the surveys. So as a group, we have enhanced dopamine receptors. We tend to be overachievers. We tend to be extremely creative. We have a unique skill set that when properly harnessed, we have superhuman powers. And the data of who's listening and who's in the private groups backs that up. So let's talk about age. Most likely we think an alcoholic is somebody who's at the tail end of their life, 40s, 50s, 60s, late 70s. It can't be somebody who in their prime, late teens, 20s, 30s. No, that just, that just can't be the case. Well, let's check the stats. It turns out that 20% of listeners are within the age range of 25 to 34. 35% of listeners are in the age group 35 to 44. 32% of listeners are from 45 to 54 and only 11% of listeners who I thought before I took this journey, when I was in high school, the words that came to my mind, the stereotype of an, of an alcoholic were somebody over the age of 55, but it turns out only 11% of listeners of podcast are over the age of 55. So if you're listening to this podcast and you say to yourself, Hmm, I'm 28 years old. I just finished grad school. I drive a Camry. I have a Kohl's reward card with no balance. There's no way I can be an alcoholic or have an alcohol use disorder. I'm way too young. Well, the stats say you're nearing the top of the bell curve. If all we care about is alcohol, then one can deduce that there's no way we can be in a relationship. But let's look at the numbers. Turns out that 27% of listeners are single and fight for bed space with a standard poodle named Ben. I'm just kidding. There's a 0.001% of listeners and that one guy's me. And then 23% are divorced, which is about on par with the national average for the average age of listeners. And then we have a whopping 51% of listeners are married. The stereotype that someone with an AUD is alone and can't be in a relationship and they are lonely and sad, well, that's denied. You want your skis? Go get them. And that's a Warren Miller reference from the 80s that I decided to just throw in there. So to summarize so far, the average listener... And let me say, there's been a lot. There's over one and a half million listens so far to this podcast. It's actually in the top 96 percentile of all podcasts on iTunes. So let's summarize. The average listener is not ending their life. They're not on the tail end of their years. They don't have a beard that goes down to the floor. They're not classified in the fossil category. They're young. They're probably in their late 30s, early 40s, and they're married. Yeah, they're young and they hold down a relationship. Okay, let's look at education levels of listeners. One might think when they hear the word alcoholic that we probably are operating in life with a middle school diploma, high school diploma tops. Well, let's look at the numbers of who's listening. So 3.6% of listeners only have a high school diploma. And we got 11% of listeners have an associate's degree. 61% of listeners have a bachelor degree. 15% have a master's degree. 3% have a PhD. 0.007% have a master degree, has a gumball machine vending route, and fights for bed space with a standard poodle named Ben. That's me. 
That is an extremely intelligent listener base, everybody. And let's compare this to the national averages. So according to national averages, only 34% of people have a bachelor's degree. We are almost double that. 7.57% have a master's degree. Yeah, we're more than double that. 1.22% of the population in the United States of America have a doctorate. Wow, we are more than double that one. And the asterisk at the bottom of the page, it says 0.004% have a master's degree, has a gumball vending machine route, and fights for bed space with a standard poodle named Ben. Hmm, I wonder if there's a private community for that. I definitely pay $14 a month to hang out with that community. So I'm not a statistician, but I think it's safe to say we are basically twice as educated as the general U.S. population, which means we are two times as smart and probably twice as good looking. So if you were to say an alcoholic or somebody with an alcohol use disorder isn't smart or educated, well, that flat out is just denied. Want your skis? Go get them. On the flip side of that coin, maybe we do have twice the amount of student loans, but the next stat will show that really isn't a problem. So now let's look at income. Since most people think that somebody with an AUD only cares about securing enough financial resources to buy their next drink, their next fix, surely they don't have any money in the bank account. They probably don't even have a bank account. Their bank account probably resembles an old Reebok shoebox, and that shoebox probably houses a couple small bills, maybe a $5, $10 bill, some spare change, and the old pair of Reeboks that they put in the box when they bought the new pair of Reeboks. Wow, that's a mouthful. Hmm, well, let's roll in the stats. It says 4.55% of listeners make less than 25 k per year. It says 22% of listeners make from 25 k to 49 k per year. Then it says 17% of listeners make 50 to 74k per year. Then it says 15% make 75 to 100k per year. 20% of listeners make from 100k to 200k, and then 12% of listeners make over 200k per year. Holy shit, we make a lot of money. So let's compare this with the national averages. It was hard to find the same income brackets to compare these numbers to, but I did find that roughly an average American makes from 50 to 55K per year. But for the sake of this argument, let's look at household incomes. According to census data from 2015, 6.1% of households bring in $200,000 and higher every year, and 14.1% bring in between $100,000 and $150,000. These are households, usually two or more people. So people with an AUD are poor? Well, that's denied. Again, just flat out denied. Want your skis? Go get them. You know what? In fact, you can have the skis on my feet because I already have 15 pairs of skis. I just bought a brand new pair of skis and I'm done skiing for the day because I'm going to go down and finish wintering on my 42-foot watercraft in Cabo. So after looking at the stats, it's safe to say that we are in the prime of our lives. We are smarter than you. We make more money than you. We're better looking than you. And after the Bozeman and Dallas retreat, I can easily say we have way more fun than you. And we do this without having to drink poison. Oh yeah, and our pets are better looking than yours too. After doing this for almost three years, I can easily say we are badass. We are fun, positive social people who are a blast to hang out with. We are always ready to give a helping hand to someone in need. We are compassionate, empathetic, loyal, highly intelligent. We are kicking ass in life. We are not losers. In fact, I don't hang out with losers. Actually, the only loser I hang out with is Jesse Long. I'm kidding. Jesse was the winner of my fantasy football league this last year. In fact, I want to try an experiment right now. This podcast episode will be listened to around 30,000 times. His name is Jesse Long. He works in Denver, Colorado. If you know him, please go up to him and say, some guy on a podcast called you a loser. I just want to see if he gets this. 
He works in IT. I can imagine him fixing a computer, someone going up, tapping his shoulder and saying, hey, this guy named Paul on a recovery podcast called you a loser. Oh yeah, and you suck at fantasy football. Make sure you throw that part in there. Please don't forget that last part. I'm actually serious on this experiment, but he's a really cool guy. He's a normal drinker. Um, But yeah, I'm curious to see if this pans out. My experience with the people that I've met from Cafe RE and other people that I've met at the meetups in person mirror these stats exactly. We are not losers. In fact, we are the opposite of losers, and I just read the data to back that up. Not only are we keeping up with the Joneses, we are the motherfucking Joneses. Uh, You you, you didn't see it there, but uh, that was a mic drop. Just dropped the mic. Okay, now let's hear from Kim. Kim, how are you? Hi there, Paul. I'm doing well, thanks. Hey, fantastic. Kim, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Well, I woke up this morning accomplishing five months of sobriety. So my um, last drink was on Labor Day, September 4th. Nice. That's huge. Five months today. Congratulations. Thank you. Nice. Usually when people notice. <laughs> yeah, and usually when people get sober around that day, it's the Tuesday, not the Monday holiday day. So I'm curious to hear more about that part. But before we get any further, let's uh, let's get a little more background about yourself, Kim. Tell us where you're from, what you do for a living. Maybe you have a family. Do you have any pets? And what do you like to do for fun, Kim? Well, I'm from Buffalo, New York. Huge Bills fan. Um, I moved to Chicago April of 2012. So my first time living in like a city life, uh, 36 years old, I work in digital marketing, pretty much like a lot of things. I stay pretty active. I'm in a pool league during the summer. I play beach, beach volleyball. I try to do a little vacations, travel. I'm a big spa person. I do like massages and try to treat myself with those kind of activities. You I'm also in school. I, I'm getting my master's in digital communication too at DePaul. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. And did you say pool? You're in a pool league? Is that like a, a swimming league or actually pool like a billiards? Like billiards. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> and imagine that that's a wintertime sport. Is the uh, billiard league uh, going on right now? It is. We just made playoffs. So we have our first playoff match on Wednesday. Gotcha. And th- usually those settings take place in bars, right? Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's been okay. The team has been really good with letting me play kind of earlier and, and leave. So I do get in a little anxious hanging out there at a bar. But we have five players, and usually I'm the first or second, and then I kind of hang out for a little bit half the time, and then I'm able to kind of get out of there. Are the other players on your team aware that you don't drink? They are aware, yes. Oh, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, life doesn't have to change drastically. I mean, you can still do those activities. Uh, I think that's really cool. Yeah, let's let's back it up a little bit, Kim. You, when did you first start to notice, start to get the indication like, huh, maybe I don't drink normally? When I got sick and was landed in the hospital. From so, alcohol? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, would, that would do it. it <laughs> yeah. It happened a few times. But the first time was actually just a few months after I moved to the city. So it was in August of 2012, and I had a bleeding stomach. I was throwing up blood and ended up being admitted into the hospital and was just scared to death and was told by doctors that I need to quit drinking and that I just can't live that life. Well, of course, that didn't stop me. So (laughs) I, I quit for a little bit, but I ended up going right back on the same path. A couple other times and one other time was just as bad where I had an endoscopy and looking at my stomach and seeing inflammation of the lining, bleeding again, pancreatitis, 
So that one was a little bit more severe where I had a different doctor that was telling me some horrific stories of previous patients and that it was a matter of of life or death for me and that I was going down a bad path and I needed to quit. Wow. And so you're sitting there, the first doctor said you need to quit. And how long do you said you quit for a little bit? What is that little bit of time frame? It's probably just a couple of weeks. I, I didn't think much of it, so I wasn't like counting days. Sure. I just remember kind of hiding in my, my apartment, not being social, just kind of becoming clean on my own, just trying to be healthy. But then time passes and you kind of forget how bad it was. And I started to get more social and come down to the community areas in my apartment complex. And people started seeing me again and I would start to have a drink here and there. So it kind of picked up bad habits pretty quickly. Wait, I want to expand on something you just said. Within the two weeks, you said you try to get clean and sober on my own. That's uh, that's a big underlying thing right there. And also you forgot how bad it was. That's the, that's the ism, the alcoholism, the incredible short memory, which, yeah, you're like, oh, well, I think a doctor told me two weeks ago I need to quit drinking for the rest of my life. Or maybe he told me to just take ibuprofen. I can't remember which one. And so, like, how, 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 what was the time frame from the first doctor to the second doctor? Oh, those two scenarios were actually a few years. I've had those symptoms, but not enough for me to go to a doctor. I just kind of went through a few sobriety weeks to mm-hmm. kind of calm my stomach down. But those big incidents were a few years apart. So I heard this at uh, in an AA meeting last night, actually. And it's, it's, uh, it's different when our body heals with alcohol. For example, if we have a broken leg... Yeah, we don't walk on it for a while. And then our leg heals. We test it out. Hmm, it's working great. And then we resume walking on the leg. And that's how it was with me with alcohol, where alcohol would wreck my body physically and mentally. And then after a couple of days, the ism, the incredible short memory, I'd say, hmm, well, just like any other physical injury, um, I'm going to go ahead and try this out again. And it sounds like you did the same thing there. Yeah, for many years. Yeah, for many years. And it sounds like you you took a couple weeks off at a time, probably in the back of your mind, it wasn't a permanent decision, right? It sounds like you're taking a couple weeks off so you could resume drinking and give the stomach a break. That's correct. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. All right. So you're there, the doctor, the second time. And and a different doctor uh, probably gave you a more grim outlook. And probably it was. Two more years had progressed. And what changed this time? So when was that, though? You said it was two years later. That would put us at 2015 or 14, and your sobriety date is 2017. It sounds like you continue to drink, even after two doctors said, Kim, this is life or death. Yeah, yeah. So that that appointment was, was definitely uh, like a rude awakening, and I became sober for eight months. So when I was at that appointment, he actually was delayed. Uh, he had an emergency. So I think I was in the waiting room for almost two hours and the waiting room was packed with people. And I walked in there and he did not care how many people were in that waiting room. He sat there with me and devoted so much time to talk to me about my drinking and why I drink. And it was almost like a therapy session and ended up calling, calling AA on the phone, on the speaker phone, trying to get the person on the other end to encourage me to go to a meeting. And I just, I just was so resistant to it. I was scared. I didn't want to do it. And then I started hearing a story from him of what happened with his emergency visit that he just had while he was delayed. And that person was hemorrhaging because of alcohol use and was having a bleeding stomach and has very similar story to me where the beginning symptoms were, were just like I did, pancreatitis and uh, bleeding of the stomach. So he shared a lot of info, of course, no name or pictures due to HIPAA, but he 
scared me with that story and spent a lot of time to give me some details to kind of make me awake of what's going on with me. So I went eight months. Wow. And I'm trying to picture that scenario. Um, you're in a, a bustling big city waiting room and the doctor who, I mean, it sounds kind of like a divine moment. The doctor who just had a patient perish from similar symptoms, you know, like where you were headed came out and said, and he was like, look, I can solve this and I don't have to cut. I don't have to prescribe medicine. I can just have a therapeutic conversation, get somebody on the line. God, that's, that's amazing. And, and you went eight months. Did that person convince you to go to a meeting? And how'd you, how'd you get that eight months? Yeah, he did. I started, it, it, it took a while because I was nervous to go. And I ended up finding someone online that goes to A regularly. And this, this friend of mine took me and I went and I, I really didn't like it, to be honest. And I went a couple times. I went to a couple different meetings and I just couldn't find it fitting. So I never did any type of program. I stopped going. I attempted it a few times, a few different meetings, tried to meet some people there, but I didn't feel like anyone was trying to connect with me on a friendship level. I felt like I was in a car dealership. I felt that I was just trying, people were just trying to get me to go to another meeting, another meeting versus trying to hang out with me outside of meetings. So it was a little discouraging and I just stopped going and I didn't do anything else. I didn't know of any other options. And I, I live what we call a dry drunk and just kind of went every day living the same lifestyle, hanging out with the same people, doing the same habits, and just went with went made it eight months. Wow! And so you went to AA, you went to a bunch of meetings, but you didn't you didn't get a sponsor. And it sounds like you, you, after that, you just went on willpower, right? Correct. Gotcha. True. And then, so what happened after eight months? Mexico. Oh, Mexico! Probably Cinco de Mayo, probably. <laughs> no. So I like to take vacations by myself and I went alone to do just some spa day and or spa weekend and I went to an all-inclusive resort because it was the cheapest place and my trip there was like four or five days and I just kept seeing everyone around me drinking and it's probably I think it was the last day I was there the second last day I was there I thought to myself they're all doing it no one's sick no one's acting silly they're all swimming up to the pool bar and having drinks and just relaxing, I could do it too. Why not? And that's what happened. I ended up treating myself and making it feel like it was an ice cream sundae. And I just had had one glass, one frozen concoction. And then later on, I ended up having one glass of wine at dinner. And I felt that it was just such a great treat. I kind of know how the story goes, but I'm curious to ask, how did the rest of the vacation <laughs> go? No, it actually was it actually was just a couple. And then I ended up leaving like the next day. And But when I got home, it wasn't that I was going to go back to not drinking. I said, well, I clearly can do this, so I'm going mm. to just have some drinks here and there. And that's what I did. And I remember going on, the, I think the following weekend, I went on a shuttle bus to a casino with some friends, and we got roadies. We're drinking box wine out of the box and having a ball, and we met some strangers on the shuttle bus, and we were having so much fun. And I made sure I got my soda water, so I diluted it enough to be a uh, spritzer so I knew that would help me not drink too much it would help not have a hangover so I was kind of policing it good strategy and yeah and and then I did that for a little while but then again bad habits went right back to where I was I was drinking heavily during my sessions and I was drinking a lot more during the week and then I was just getting more and more hangovers and got back to the guilty feeling of why am I doing this I remember when I first drank after two and a half years of sobriety, the wheels came off real quick. And then I had 10 months of sobriety 
and and then I started drinking again and it was almost like I had two or three sessions where it was moderately controlled. Sure. It was painful to stop drinking. I, I only purchased a finite amount, but gosh, those two times were actually successfully moderated it. It just propelled my drinking. Like I was chasing that, that control, which I just can never get. And it's almost like, I wish, you know, like when I asked you about Mexico, I feel like had, you know, that vacation just spiraled out of control. It probably would have like propelled you faster in your journey. But you know, it sounds like you didn't waste a vacation on that and that's good. You know, what, what happened after that, after, you know, you started drinking more and more and more. Yeah. Tell me what happened. Well, I spent too many days hungover. I spent a lot of money at IV me. Are you familiar with IV me? <laughs> I'm guessing this is a big city service where, <laughs> where, uh, millennials and young professionals, uh, I think you're at the tail end of the millennial curve there. Kim can go and get electrolytes before they start the work day. Yeah. <laughs> Does that actually work? Yeah, unless your stomach's bleeding, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that's my question. So did you go back to the third time on September 5th, 2017 to a doctor, and there's like, hey, your stomach is still bleeding, or was this something where you were just sick and tired of being sick and tired? You're like, you had, uh, you had yeah. your, fle- your frequent flyer card with the IV place. There's like 50 punches on it, one free IV thing. You're like, all right, this has got to stop. <laughs> yeah, my bank account wasn't liking that too much. More, but it it wasn't another doctor visit. It was more of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was feeling pretty depressed and just sad and knew even when I was drinking, I knew that I shouldn't be doing it. And I still was. And I think that I was disappointed in myself that I've done this a few times and life was okay. Why did I get back to where I was? So can you tell us about a time when you felt those feelings that you were depressed and you were hungover and you realized you're probably not gaining much traction in life. Can you remember a specific time? Yeah, but I kept drinking again. So that was Labor Day weekend. Super upset, super depressed and drank Friday night. And then I knew I was off on Monday. So Saturday, Sunday was hungover, was still upset, but wasn't ready to, to face quitting or trying to ask for help. I didn't even know where to go for help. And I just kept drinking. Now, are you on a lake house outside of Chicago with a bunch of friends on a ski boat, probably jet skiing at the same time, enjoying the high life like they show in the commercials? Or were you drinking at home by yourself on Labor Day weekend? Labor Day weekend was by myself, and that's kind of the reason why. I had kind of like a friend situation where I was just left out of activities and child, childish as it may seem. I was just left out and depressed, and I wasn't doing anything so fun and exciting that weekend, which made it even harder than all the other times because the other times I'm enjoying it and I'm having fun and I'm being social. And then this is the opposite. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it just sounds exhausting. Like you mentioned, and you quit on Monday. Was that it? Not the Tuesday? Well, no, Monday, Monday I drank. So my first day was that Tuesday. Okay. Nope. I'm, I was wrong. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I drank on Monday and I had a fantasy football draft don't remember how I did it, but I did it, and I did it well. <laughs> Do you remember who your and first pick was? Nope. <laughs> it probably was Gronkowski. God, I got to get I, you in my league. Not, but I'm not certain. Hey, I did really well. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I didn't kidding. play up, but I did really Hopefully well. Hopefully <laughs> you're sober for a draft, yeah, but i got to find somebody in my football league that just gets blacked out every draft, so they're just like, <laughs> like a bye week when we play each other, so... Anyways, it's a terrible strategy, especially coming from a guy who runs a sober podcast. But, hey, you know, i got to use it to my advantage sometimes. That's awesome you play fantasy football, Kim. I'm putting on my notepad, I'm writing that down, and putting five stars next to your name. You're my, now, you're my new hero. 
I'm in three leagues. Wait, three leagues? I'm going to spit out my coffee right there. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Three leagues. They're all with folks back home in Buffalo. That's my way of keeping contact. And I was looking forward to that draft, was prepping for it. But instead, I started drinking, went down the street to a bar, ended up doing the draft from my cell phone. And the next morning, I was like, who the hell did I pick? <laughs> We heard three leagues. You prep for drafts. Um, next time in Chicago, can we go on a date, Kim? Sure. <laughs> that is so awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, so so how'd you do it on uh, on the the fifth of September, two thousand seventeen? How'd you do it? What was that like? Oh, it was a lot of tears. I called in the work, tried to go, took an Uber halfway there, had my Uber driver turn around because I just couldn't do it. And wait, did you tell him? Went home. Did you tell him, or did you do it on the app? Say that again. Did you tell him, or did you? I think you can do it on the app. Like, he says, like his phone beeps. And he's like, uh, couldn't you have just told me to turn around? Because I think oh, you like mid app, yeah, yeah mid drive. No. You can like. Oh no, I told. Be pretty funny. I told him. <laughs> okay. I said, I can't do this. I'm not feeling well. I got to go. So he pulls over, thinking I'm just gonna like throw up in his car. Oh, he's been down that road before, pun intended, kind of. And yeah. And then I'm telling him my story that I just started this job and that I feel really bad and I need to go in. And he's giving me the guilt trip. Yes, you can't call in. You just started. You need to go. And I'm dying in the back seat. And I was like, after you, take me back home. Oh, wow. So called in, went home, and got some Pepto-Bismol, tried to do anything to calm my stomach down because it was, it was hurting very badly. But nothing, nothing was helping. Couldn't eat. Just try to drink some water, just try to feel better. And I had a therapy appointment that, that night. So I went to my, see my therapist and I'm laying there hung over on his couch. And all he said to me was, this is an option. What you're feeling right now doesn't have to happen. You don't have to be this way. You're choosing this feeling. And it kind of resonated with me because it was right. I didn't have to be this way and stopped drinking ever since. So were you fully honest with your therapist or just say, well, you know, I might've drank too much last night, had a bad taco, could have been that. Um, or were you just straight up, no. like, the gig is up? Brutally honest. Cause he's been mm. through this journey with me for several months prior and he knew when I quit for the eight months and he knew when I tried to do this again and I would try to police it and have a good strategy. So he, he knew, he never, he didn't give advice around like discouraging it, but would have me think about why I was drinking. So I was really honest that I couldn't do it. I just was not good at it. So what was the why? If you said he was asking, you know, why are you drinking, Kim? What, what do you think the answer to that is? Uh, I still struggle with that answer. I keep going back to the social life. I'm a very social, energetic person. I like to be around people and into things and in the know, and everything that there is is, is alcohol-related. So going to events and activities and hanging out with friends, and there's always alcohol, and then I just, I just didn't say no because I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be around and have fun and be on the same level as everyone else. So the thought of not drinking and taking that away from me was just devastating. It felt like a life sacrifice. Kim, I'm going to ask you a true or false question. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Everybody was kung fu fighting. True or false? Oh, true. Well, 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 okay. We've all heard the song. Everybody was kung fu fighting, of course. But I actually looked into that on the set of that song. You know, when they recorded it, there was 14 people not kung fu fighting. In fact, the majority of people were not kung fu fighting. Yeah. 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 In fact, in fact like, I, like I said, the bulk of people were not kung fu fighting. And I saw, I saw a meme of that yesterday. It just cracked up because... 
we think in our minds that everybody is drinking. <laughs> we think that, and we think that everybody drinks at the same level that we do. But now in sobriety, I'm at, at parties, like social functions. I've been to weddings. I've been to all kinds of parties. And God, no one is drinking as much as I did. Like nobody. And a lot of, there's a lot of people there that just aren't drinking at all. And if they do, it's like one or two beers. Um, you know, so, so I get it. But I saw that meme and I just started laughing so hard because it's so true. We feel like, oh, you don't understand what it's like in, in South Georgia. Everybody drinks. You don't understand what it's like <laughs> in Washington. Everybody drinks. I mean, that's like, I get it. Everybody drinks everywhere, it seems. But if you go one layer deeper, it's it's kind of, I don't know. I don't know. It's, I just wanted to share that with you. But uh, um, I got one more question, but I want to share this story. You said, you know, you, you talked about the Uber. I remember when I had an intense panic attack in Spain. It was is this I think was like the impetus of what started my journey into sobriety. The, the anxiety was so bad. It was a panic attack. And I got in the taxi cab, I think midnight, one in the morning in the morning, and I told him I was having a heart attack. And uh you know, like saying it quick, like, you gotta get me to the hospital, I'm going to a heart I'm having a heart attack. And he stops at a red light and I'm thinking, like, did I get this word wrong from English to Spanish? The word is infarto. And I was like, I was like, did, you, did I say the word right? Infarto? He's like, yeah, heart attack. I was like, well, why are you stopping at a red light? <laughs> and like, I think he knew I was full of shit. When I got to the doctor's office, I'm like, I'm having a heart attack. They're like, okay, just fill out this paperwork and uh, we'll get right with you. I don't, I don't know. Like I've been there in the Uber or the taxi cab thinking that life is ending and it sucks. It, it does. It, it's, it's a shitty experience. <laughs> but yeah, what, uh, what would you consider your rock bottom moment and a lot of people think it's like it's going to be september 5th but maybe it's not what would you consider would be your rock bottom moment no it was definitely at the the gastrologist being sick just sick just being back there going through this whole process again where i have to pay money for an endoscopy to tell me what i already know yeah have you met with a doctor in sobriety about your stomach and behind you tests done not since then not um not since then I haven't had any issues. I've only had the doctor, uh, my primary doctor, send me over there when I just had similar symptoms for what they had in their records from a few years ago. So everyone, I think, knew the obvious. Gotcha. And so what have you done differently this time from September 5th, 2017? You know, I, I met you virtually within the private groups cafe area, but then I also had the pleasure of meeting you in person a couple weeks ago at the Dallas retreat. So you've, you've engaged with other like-minded individuals. I know that much, but tell us, tell us more. Yeah. So I knew it had to be different. Uh, I didn't want to keep going through the sobriety spurts. I wanted to, to do this for real. So I did a lot of research because the only thing I knew about was AA and I didn't want to just do that. I wanted to learn what other things, what other options I have, what are some alternatives. And I talked to my therapist about this and finally I heard the word smart recovery from him. So I went home and Googled the heck out of it and found that there are several meetings and I tried that. So I do smart recovery on Saturday mornings and I also just start looking for different books and articles and podcasts and Things I never did. I never searched on podcasts. I never listened to a podcast until I, I decided that I wanted to keep looking up these keywords on sobriety, and that's where I found yours. And just started doing things and just hearing your conversation, you inspired me to find other resources. So just other podcasts, other books, joining the Cafe RE group, meeting all those great people, setting up with an accountability partner. My accountability partner is amazing. We became friends. She's, I'm very dependent on her for a lot of things. We, we talk not just around 
sobriety um, issues or concerns we have in recovery, but we talk about just about everyday life and, and just became really good friends. So that all of that has helped since September 5th. And I think I saw a post in the group. Did you actually fly out to see your accountability partner? I did. So we got so comfortable with, with each other and New Year's was approaching and I was getting anxious around the holidays. So I made plans to fly out after Christmas to hang out with her for the New Year. So I spent my first time in San Francisco and I stayed with her and so I was able to meet Jesse face to face. We had such a great time and now our relationship is even closer. That is so cool. That is awesome. Um, and tell me about your experience in Dallas. What was it like for you? Oh my gosh, I loved it. When uh, I get when I'm asked how it was, I just say the word validation. It validated everything for me. It made me feel so much more comfortable with what I'm doing, and that I'm not doing this alone. That there are other people that are just like me. And the whole stereotype of who people are in recovery is just out the window for me. That just helped me realize that there's many people out there that are going through the same thing, and we're all good people. Yeah, in fact, the the podcast topic for this episode is going to be just that. You know, I read stats at the Dallas retreat. You know, I asked the questions like, "Hey, what does everybody think of when they hear the word alcoholic?" You know, just give me the words, give me the stereotypes. And you heard the typical uh, homeless, weak person, male, like uh, you know, lives under a bridge, brown bag. Stats show that's three to five percent. And then I read off the stats of what we really are. And wow, we are a creative, successful, ambitious, compassionate bunch of people and you get that group of people together that has such a huge thing in common like the alcohol wow we bond fast and i had a pleasure meeting you it was awesome it was a lot of fun it was great yeah and and you're also going to peru which gosh that's going to be a trip of a lifetime i i you know, my only complaint is it's not happening soon enough i wish it was happening like next month but what about that trip has piqued your interest and why are you going Oh, gosh, I set an alarm when I saw the ad for it and when the registration was going to open. I think I probably was one of the first people to register. I don't get opportunities to travel like that. First of all, I don't have that kind of network, and I don't know if I would do that with just pure strangers. I mean, I know that I'm not going to know everybody on that trip. So I wanted to do something that was different. And when it was with people that are very similar to me, and I know they're not going to be drinking and we're going to be able to give back and and just do something really exciting, I, I was sold. I was in. I wanted, I like to be social and if I could be social and do it sober with other sober people, sold. Ditto, ditto on my end. And I got, I got to tell you a funny story. I've got a lot of these emails in the past. It's like at the end, oh yeah, for my friend, you know, someone's asking questions about drinking. Oh yeah, it's for my friend. Right. And I was getting these emails yesterday about questions for Peru and two of the emails at the end said, oh yeah, it's for my friend. Right. And like, I'm, I don't know. It could be, they could be emailing me for their friend. And then, and then two minutes later, they sign up for themselves. <laughs> I was just laughing. Oh. <laughs> it's like, oh, gosh, because <laughs> I've been there before. Like, <laughs> it's so funny. We're embarrassed of saying that we we want to join a recovery community or group. I mean, yeah, that we, breaks my heart. I was in the same situation, and now I'm proud of it, and I'm happy to share my experience. But it's it's sad that we, that's where we are in life. Yeah, the stigma is what puts me behind the microphone. And Kim, I can tell you the most badass thing about you is you don't drink and you're in a pool league and you're sober. It's pretty sweet. It's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, and I know when you said smart recovery, that piqued the ears of a lot of listeners. Tell us what a smart recovery meeting is like and what's your thought on it? Oh, so it's more science-based. It's about doing activities and worksheets around 
your your thinking and your behaviors. We spend a lot of time going around the table talking about what we're working on and how our week is and what our week what what our goals are for the following week. So what I like about this meeting is that we're talking about the present moment. We're talking about what we want to do and their short-term goals. We're not living in the past, dwelling on how bad our situation may have been. We're talking about what we want to do now and how we're going to get it better. Now, does everybody share at a meeting? Yep. So we go around the table. My meeting typically has about 10 to 15 people and we go around the table a couple times and they cross communication is encouraged. So someone is introducing themselves and talking a little bit about other week and someone can relate. It's encouraged to actually have conversation and, and it kind of uh, interrupts, if you will, to have just a dialogue started. There right. is a facilitator there that volunteers their time and they just kind of monitor the conversation and make sure we don't get off track and do anything that could be triggers for people. Sure, sure. Yeah, I've been to a couple smart meetings and they're, they're cool. Like you mentioned, it's more of a scientific, cognitive-based therapeutic approach. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there are more resources out there than just AA. And uh, and Kim, what what would you say is your most proudest moment in sobriety? I think it's sharing my story and to help others. So I recently started blogging and sharing my story and created a video, and other people have been sharing it with other sobriety groups, and I'm getting feedback from people thanking me for sharing my story, and it just makes me really proud of where I've come and keeps me motivated to keep doing this. I, I'm helping people and people are coming out of the woodwork. I'm getting some acquaintances and, and friends on social media, family of friends on social media that are reaching out to me and, and thanking me for sharing their story and interested in learning more about what a sober life is like. That is so cool. And it's Brighter Mornings. But yeah, where do we where can we find that blog? So it's brightermornings.org. Gotcha. I, I love the name. And, and what was it like? What did you feel like when you first you know, hit publish in WordPress or whatever your website publishing platform is when you, when you came out? Oh, gosh. I had it ready. I had a date set in November. I was super pumped. It was actually part of a school project. So I spent several weeks just kind of building it out and thinking what I wanted to talk about and getting kind of anxious about sharing my story and putting out there because if I hit publish, that means it's real. I am sober and I have to commit to this a big account, which is a huge reason why I started in the first place. And, uh, and it was November. I wanted to get it done right before the Thanksgiving holiday because I thought there'd be some folks out there that might uncover this and maybe I could help people during those rough times. And it was exciting. It was just, I was thrilled. Um, I had a network of people at school that knew what I was working on and they were, they were really happy that I was doing this. That is so cool. And if I recall correctly, in Dallas, you said, I just want some people to go bowling with in Chicago. So <laughs> I'm going to throw it out right now. Listeners, if you're listening, if you're in the Chicago area and you're listening to Kim, you're like, man, she seems like a pretty cool gal in three fantasy football leagues. Man, this is my kind of gal, right? You're just going to get some girls together, go bowling. Uh, shoot me an email and uh, we'll get you connected with Kim. And it's all about the community. So, yeah. Hope that's okay. Yes, thank you. I All want right. to go bowling. <laughs> yeah. And can we have reached the rapid fire round? If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I am ready. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? <laughs> so my worst memory has, is not that memorable because I blacked out. But heading to an ex's house and not realizing what I did or said or how long I was even there 
and waking up the next morning with what I like to call the fear, mm. uh, regretting and trying to remember what the heck I did because I was pretty embarrassed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you can't control your drinking? Oh, sitting in the IV me place probably uh, over and over again, giving them my credit card for another $130. $130? That's without the oxygen. Oh, gosh. Oxygen? What are, what are some other add-ons? A, 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 an alpaca quilt? <laughs> 20 more bucks, you get some oxygen to help your headache. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Wow. That's okay. And next question. Kim, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Plus to continue doing the research that I'm doing, finding other alternatives. And I'm really trying to build a community and meet more people. So... Through Brighter Mornings, I run a sober uh, brunch club, and I keep advertising, and I keep hosting that once a month, and I hope that I could just meet more people through that and, and maybe through you because I'll be able to go bowling with someone. <laughs> <laughs> a sober brunch club. I might have to take that idea and implement it here in Bozeman. That's awesome. Uh, and yeah. what's your favorite resource in recovery? And feel free to list many because you, you say, hey, I like podcasts. I like books. Yeah, what 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 other podcasts do you like and what books have you read? Oh, my gosh. So I'm all over the place. Yeah, there's definitely um, podcast books. The Happy Hour was my recent favorite. I felt like I related to her. Uh, the Naked Mind, but in Smart Recovery, I was just so thankful that there's so many alternatives. But I got to say, it's your community. Recovery Elevator is by far my favorite resource. Well, meeting people you. in Dallas, meeting people online, meeting my accountability partner, all those things have changed my life this last five months. That is so cool to hear. And thank you for listening and, and being an active part of my sobriety as well. I appreciate that. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received, Kim? Thought about this one. And. You've said it, and I don't know if I'll quote you directly, but it's not changing something. It's changing everything. Yep. I, I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't coin that, but, yeah, there's variations. You don't have to change much. You just have to change everything. And, God, a lot's got to change. And um, I know I kind of said the opposite at the earlier part of this interview, but I said that. I'm like, uh, I wish I could take that back. So I'm formally taking that back right now. And what parting <laughs> piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about taking this journey? Well, don't question it. Definitely do it. But I, I have to say it wasn't, it's not easy. It's, and I don't want people to think that you quit and it's all joyous and great. The end result is amazing, but the symptoms that go through it are a little tough. I mean, relationships are going to change. You're going to have emotional roller coaster. And I think that if I was warned, it would have maybe been easier for me. So um, just knowing that that could happen and it probably will happen, but but the end result is definitely worth it because uh, I don't regret any of it. But I do recall uh, the last few months um, being a little bit of a struggle. And Kim, before we depart, give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you call into your job hungover on day three. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's quite a bender you're coming off of there. <laughs> that's awesome. Kim, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and nice job on five months. That is so cool. Thank you. Thank you. Ready to fuel your recovery in a once in a lifetime way? 
Ready to get outside your comfort zone with other like-minded individuals? Are you ready to experience a bucket list adventure? Well, the Recovery Elevator Peru Retreat will take place this October 13th to the 23rd, and it's an incredible opportunity to push your limits and have an adventure of a lifetime. And you can do this alongside with people who are also on their journey in recovery. What can you expect on this trip? The adventure begins in beautiful and historically rich Cusco, where we'll explore the area and acclimate to the high altitude. From there, we'll make our way to Urubamba and the Sacred Valley. One of the best parts of recovery is being able to give back, and we'll have an incredible opportunity to do that in Urubamba. We're partnering with the nonprofit Group Peruvian Hearts to do service work with the orphanage and perform various service projects in the area. We're even going to be doing some community outreach, some educational events about alcohol for the community. After this, the journey continues as we begin our hike along the 38-mile Inca Trail, which culminates with our descent into Machu Picchu. The best part about this is you're doing it with other like-minded individuals. I want to close out today's podcast by reading an excerpt from As Bill Sees It. How much anonymity? As a rule, the average newcomer wanted his family to know immediately what he was trying to do. He also wanted to tell others who had tried to help him, his doctor, his minister, and close friends. As he gained confidence, he felt it right to explain his new way of life to his employer and business associates. When opportunities to be helpful came along, he found he could easily talk about AA to almost anyone. These disclosures helped him to lose his fear of the alcoholic stigma and spread the news of AA's existence in his community. Many a new man and woman came to AA because of such conversations. Since it is only at the top public level that anonymity is expected, such communications are well within its spirit. Wait a second. Isn't it Alcoholics Anonymous? Now I know the anonymous part, which is key to the success of the program, is not sharing details of who is in the meeting and what is said. It needs to be a safe landing point for people to go to the meetings. But hang on a second. What I'm just reading says we're supposed to talk about our recovery, talk about our experiences in AA within the community? Huh. And this is as who sees it? As Brad sees it? No, shit. This is as Bill sees it. Huh. Interesting. Maybe Bill didn't want us to be as anonymous as we're taking it. Hmm. Food for thought. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 